Father, thank you so much for this group. And uh, maybe the teenagers are not totally excited about being here, but I'm excited they're here. And um, I do pray for the requests that were made and others that perhaps people didn't make, but uh, things that are weighing on their hearts. Um, I pray for the Wilsons who are traveling right now. I continue to pray for their safety and just for, uh, for them to have an enjoyable vacation. They work so hard all the time, Lord. And in fact, this is the first extended vacation I can think of them having. Uh, so I pray that uh, you will calm these fires down that are raging in Arizona since they're headed that way so that they'll be able to get to the Grand Canyon and enjoy the majesty of it. And uh, I pray for those that are struggling with health or those that are dealing with financial problems and uh, trying to figure out their future or relationship issues uh, or just plain depression or uh, whatever people might be dealing with. I pray that we might turn that over to you um, if we have uh, areas of our lives that are, that are habits or addictions, I pray that we can turn that over to you and know that uh, you can handle it all. And you love us all along the way. I pray you open your word. I pray that we'll be receptive to what you say. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. So you'll notice as I start reading that <clears throat> we covered uh, this first verse last week, but I'm going to read uh, one through five and we may get beyond that. Actually, we will get beyond that. I'm hoping that we'll, uh, we'll get to six and seven as well. Okay. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I, don't even, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay. Um, so he begins by saying that it's a small thing if he should be judged by these people or by any human court. Have you been judged by anybody recently? You felt like somebody has been standing over you and kind of uh, telling you how you ought to live your life. I mentioned this briefly in passing last week, but I had a uh, an interesting altercation? No, not really an altercation experience, maybe, uh, with someone on Facebook that isn't even a friend. So you know how you can post something and somebody can repost it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then if they repost it, if you posted a comment with it, then somebody can comment on it. Mm -hmm. So this person, I don't even know this person, and this, this happens all the time. If you comment on something you know, out there in the public sphere, then you know, people will jump all over you. This is what happens on Twitter, of course, all the time, which is one of the reasons I quit Twitter. Uh, but in any event, <clears throat> with Facebook, you can be a little more careful uh, about curating your friends list. But um, a friend reposted something that I had, and I'm not gonna get into the substance of it because I don't wanna get into a big debate in here about it either. <coughs> I wanna just talk about judging because there's a lot of it going on right now, all right? 
What I posted was a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. And then I said something. And, you know, I was kind of broad brushed with what I said. But I said something uh, about the quote. And I was very favorable to the quote. MLK is one of my heroes. He really is. Always has been. I am blown away by the dude. And uh, he was not a perfect guy. You know, a lot of our heroes, when we dig into, you know, who they were, they were like not perfectly faithful to their wives. And it just gets kind of discouraging, you know. I mean, I've got to, I can show you a whole series and history of uh, people. Yeah, Noah is going to be here. So, um, yeah, I hate to let all of you go. Huh? All the youth are down here, so yeah. No, if you start getting bored, you can do jumping jacks back there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got those chairs turned around, and that's just yeah, that's always kind of a hassle. In any event, so yeah, online is is a good place to get judged. It really is, and so I I repost this MLK quote, and. Uh, this person who I don't even know, who doesn't even know me, says, Daryl was wrong to say that and blah, blah, blah. That's classic judgment, right? You don't even know me. You don't know me, right? You just think you know me. You don't know the substance of why I'm doing it. See, the thing is, when somebody judges you, they're automatically assuming that they know your heart. They don't know your heart, right? Even people that are close to you may not know your heart. And there's just a whole lot of this finger pointing judgment, you know, based statements going along instead of us just being kind and courteous and gracious to each other and give each other, giving each other a break. Because, you know, even people that you may strongly disagree with, they may think the way they think with a good motive. Right. They may have a good purpose and you may be utterly convinced that they're wrong and they could be wrong. Okay, but I will say this, texts, emails, and certainly social media are not the places where that should all play out. It's just not a good way to do it. In fact, I would even say even phone calls don't work. Sit down and talk to someone face to face, right? And if you know them, they know you, then you can talk about things. You can disagree with things. You can even get a little heated. But in the end, it's going to be okay. So here's another example. And this is a social media thing as well. Um, I think a lot of things started getting further and further divided left and right uh, in the ramp up to the 2016 election. I had a friend, and I've mentioned this in here before, but some of you are new and you haven't heard this, but I had a, a friend and he was a friend. Uh, who didn't agree with me on really just about anything, <laughs> okay? Um, he is uh, uh, from New York. This doesn't say, this just shows the diversity, not putting anybody down for being from New York. He was from New York. He's Jewish. He's an atheist. He's a civil rights lawyer. And I had a good relationship with him, right? I'm from Phoenix. I'm a Christian. Um, you know, and I have very different opinions than this guy. So what would happen is uh, his daughter, his adopted daughter, went to our church at the time 
And either Thanksgiving or Christmas every year, they would invite me over to either their house or his house. And we would have great, these great debates, right? About the existence of God and about political issues and you know all these different things. And we would be on opposite sides of the fence on almost every single issue. And yet we got along and enjoyed each other's company. Isn't that amazing? And there wasn't any judging going on as in, you know, fault finding, okay, name calling, none of that. And the guy's actually a really good cook too, by the way. Um, but he gets on Facebook and we start having these debates on Facebook. And I thought, you know, that's going to be potentially positive if people can see uh, two folks on opposite sides of some very important issues who are debating those issues and bringing out reasons why they believe, okay? Because a lot of times people make judgments on their emotional response, right? Um, they just don't like that person. They don't like how they're coming across. And so they just have this knee-jerk reaction, right? Just don't want to talk to you, hate you, da -da -da -da, all these things. Or now what we have is we have what uh, is being called, I think appropriately, tribalism. You know what that means? Mm -hmm. You might not even realize that this is what's going on, but you're a part of a tribe. Now, you don't think that way. You're, you're you know, not all affiliated with, uh, you know, we'll say like the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You had Judah and you had Benjamin and you had Ephraim and Manasseh and people were loyal to their tribe, but all 12 tribes were part of Israel. But there were times when those tribes were fighting with each other. This is what's happening in America. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this very, uh, ch these chapters that we've been looking at. It's people seeking to break up into tribes. So you identify with everybody who's in your tribe, right? And what they believe. Now you're connected somehow, right? So Dragon Ball, I, I'm assuming, who plays video games in here? You ever play video games, right? Video games? Okay. So do you play the kind of video games where you talk to everybody? Yes. And you scream at everybody and they scream at you? Yeah. Yeah, that kind of, all right. <laughs> So, so there's even that. Now, I'm sure that most of the time it's, it's focused on the game, but people have a similarity of values in those environments. And if you diverge, yeah, then everybody's jumping on you and hating on you. And by and large, if you hold traditional Orthodox Christian opinions, you are going to be coming against a whole lot of other people, right? You guys are in the theater department or we're in the theater department. That's a tribe. Uh, in fact, I can remember, now I don't know what your theater department is like, but most theater departments are like this. It's, it's a group of, of people that all do the same thing, like the same things, um, but you're very, very deeply involved with each other for extended periods of time in what you're doing. So you get to know those people. They're like family, right? And you probably find that many of them have certain opinions on certain subjects. And if you hold a different opinion, it causes friction, right? The question is, can you have a conversation with them and agree to disagree? Or does it cause them to want to push you out, to castigate you? So what happens a lot of times with Christians, I think today is that they just go along because they are more identified with their tribe 
than they are with Christ. That's what we see. Because we're constantly concerned about people hating us, not wanting to be our friend, judging us, coming up against us, right? So this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He loves these people. He really loves the Corinthians, right? I've, I've titled this whole overall study that we're doing right now, uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, God's dysfunctional people, right? You heard the, the, the uh, concept of a dysfunctional group or a dysfunctional family. It means that they're, they're not healthy, they're not getting along, right? There are issues. That's these people. And God loves them. And he's trying to, through the Apostle Paul, guide them and redirect them. So he writes this letter, that is the Apostle Paul writes this letter, telling them that they shouldn't be dividing into these camps, into these tribes, right? I am of Paul, I'm of Apollos, uh, I'm of Cephas, uh, I'm of Christ, and so forth. I was listening to a, uh, a YouTube, there's a guy, he's a young guy, but he's very knowledgeable, uh, about uh, Christian denominations. And that's just kind of his thing. He just talks about all of these different denominations and he, he's not pejorative, he doesn't judge. He just simply gives you the, the facts. This is what this denomination believes. This is what this one. So I did, I just, right before I came in here, I watched this uh, rundown that he did on 50, as in 5-0, Christian denominations. And with the advent of uh, the LGBT push, there is even further division among those 50 denominations. So in the early part of the 20th century, denominations started dividing over the way they looked at the Bible, right? It's over a, uh, a doctrine called inerrancy. Anybody ever heard of that word before, inerrancy, right? It means that you believe that the Bible is without error or uh, the uh, typical position is that it is without error in all that it affirms. Well, that's not coming off of the issue any. It's simply saying that the Bible reports many things that it doesn't support. Does that make sense? Right? If you're writing a paper on something and you quote someone, they may be lying. They may not have the facts correctly, but you're quoting them. Right? or you're including them. Let's, let's say you're writing a narrative and you have a character that is notoriously deceptive. Right? Satan is in the Bible. He lies. Well, his lies are not inerrant. Does that make sense? Right? So we're going to say that the Bible's... Um, so there's this huge uh, debate that went on among major denominations in the early 20th century. Presbyterians divided over this. Um, later, Baptists divided over this. Um, Methodists. Methodists to a degree. What, here's what happened. Um, what we call today mainline denominations, and again, this might not be a term you've, you've been affiliated with, but mainline denominations are typically the denominations that we would use the term united with today. So the United Methodist Church, right? Uh, PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, the Episcopal Church, um, uh, the uh, United, the Disciples of Christ, 
These are all mainline churches. They've all been in steep decline membership-wise throughout the 20th century, and it's even getting worse in the 21st century. And that is in direct correlation with their departure from Scripture. Whereas conservative denominations, denominations that have affirmed the Scripture and inerrancy of the Scripture, have by and large increased numerically or at least maintained their numbers. So Southern Baptists are a good example of a denomination that has copiously held to inerrancy of Scripture. And Southern Baptists went through a huge uh, debate and almost split over this in the late 20th century, uh, in the, the late 70s and so forth. All I'm saying is this might not be terribly interesting to you guys, but people divide over issues. Sometimes those issues are important. Sometimes those issues are unimportant. I was at a church that I was serving at where a man came in. I was the youth minister and the associate pastor at this church. And uh, so as the associate pastor, I made a lot of different decisions along with the pastor. And we had changed the carpet in the offices of the church. And when we went through that process, uh, the, car the carpet guy came in and, you know, he showed all these swatches of different carpet, you know, whatever. And, and so, you know, I didn't have much input on the carpet that was downstairs, but my office was upstairs. And so I picked a different carpet than the carpet that was downstairs. This guy was mad at me over that. I've heard of churches that have divided over the color of the carpet that they chose. So people can divide over stupid stuff, right? or over important stuff, over moral issues. Um, I think the, the continuing debate over LGBT issues, it's an important debate. Um, in fact, right now, the United Methodist Church, as soon as they meet the next time, actually, they're not even gonna wait for the meeting. Um, they are preparing to divide right now. And it is over this issue there are those in the United Methodist Church that want to perform homosexual weddings, that want to ordain gay ministers, and there are those who hold to a traditional Orthodox biblical position who are opposed to that. And it's almost equally divided. In fact, the last time they voted, it was, I think, 51 to 47 percent was the the uh, the percentage dividing, and the 51 or 52 percent were the ones that uh, wanted to hold to the traditional position uh, on human sexuality, you know, that marriage is between one man and one woman, um, and uh, that homosexuality is not God's plan for someone's life, and so forth, whereas the, the 47 percent, a very large minority, were affirming. Well, believe it or not, um, it is the 52%, although they have control, technically speaking, over the denomination, they've decided to say, you know what, we're going to give the United Methodist denomination to you. We're going to become the world Methodists. And so they've simply chosen to, and without acrimony or hatred or anything like that, they've simply chosen to, to divide. But what I'm showing you is that we have examples of this in our day as well. What's really bad, though, is when people judge each other's character on the basis of their position. So right now, if you do not strongly support, celebrate um, same-sex marriage, 
you are automatically termed a homophobe. Well, I don't support same-sex marriage, but I'm not a homophobe. Honestly, on a personal level, I don't care what you do with your private life. That's not my business. But it is my business to tell you the truth from the perspective of Scripture and say that God's got a plan for you. And so what I've chosen to do, rather than scream and holler and yell and jump up and down and say, you know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, is to say, this is not God's plan. God's got a better plan. It really is a better plan. And I can show you a number of people who have struggled with homosexual feelings and affiliations, some of which have pursued that lifestyle for a period of time, who have come to know Christ and have turned around and, you know, have decided that even though it's still a struggle, that they really, really do believe Jesus and they want to follow Jesus. And so, listen, life is a struggle. Temptations are temptations. And it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, a temptation toward same-sex attraction or it's a temptation toward, you know, drinking alcohol to excess or whether it's a temptation to doing something that's self-destructive, you know, cutting yourself, something like that, okay? Um, these are all temptations that we have. The question is, are we going to pursue them? Some people are naturally more violent, right? Some people have, a lot of men have anger problems. You might have been, you know, at the brunt of this. And, uh, you know, oftentimes a man with an anger problem will immediately turn around and apologize and then be angry again and then apologize and be angry again and then apologize. That's obviously a problem, right? What I shouldn't be doing is saying, well, that's just the way I am. Deal with it. What I should be doing is, is saying, you know what? Life is a struggle and this is a part of my struggle. And so maybe I need some help. Okay. Um, so what we need to do as believers in Christ is not judge each other, right? So the Apostle Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Well, the Apostle Paul, uh, after this letter, after he wrote this letter and 2 Corinthians, did end up being judged by a human court, and he ended up having his head lopped off under the Emperor Nero. But he wasn't concerned about that. What he's concerned about is pleasing the Lord. What he's concerned about is having a clear conscience. Um, so I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. earlier as one of my heroes, but do you know who Martin Luther King Jr. is named after? Okay, yes, he's named after his father, Martin Luther King, but do you know their first and middle name? Do you know who that, who that is? Do you know who Martin Luther was? So up until Martin Luther, in the, the uh, early 16th century, there were just two churches in the entire world. And in fact, until uh, the second millennium, right, uh, until we crossed over into the thousands, I want to say it's like 10, uh, what's the date, 1057, there was a split in the worldwide church, right, Christian church, which was called the Catholic Church at that time. The word Catholic, by the way, which has become denominational, just means universal. It's just a word that means universal. So if you see Catholic with a little c, that's not the Roman Catholic Church. That means the universal church. But until uh, shortly after the second millennium, there was just one church. But then the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church split 
primarily over their interpretation of the Nicene Creed, particularly uh, the filioque clause, we won't get into that, and over the, the Pope, the idea of there being one head of the church and that head being in Rome, so they split. But until the 15, early 1500s, that was it. Well, what happened was Martin Luther came along and he nailed, he was a monk. He was a Catholic monk, right? Which means he was a very, very strict, uh, pious Catholic who was really trying to mind his, his manners, so to speak, his morals, and do everything right. And he constantly felt condemned. He constantly felt bad about himself. He constantly felt like he was a failure. In fact, he felt like he was mad at God a lot of times. I won't ask you to raise your hand on that one. You ever been mad at God? Right? By the way, God's not afraid of you being mad at him. Right? Just be honest with him. Because there's a lot of times when we're like toddlers and we're just not getting our way and we just don't understand and we're just mad. Right? Yeah. Well, Martin Luther was just frustrated. But he was super smart. He could read the New Testament in Greek. He could read the Old Testament in Hebrew. And he was reading Romans. And he encountered Romans chapter 1 where it says, the just shall live by their faith. That we are made right by our faith in Christ, not by what we do. Not by our deeds. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't behave. Right? It shouldn't be better. But that's not what makes you right with God. What makes you right with God is Jesus. So you come to Jesus with all of your mess, right? You admit your sin and you recognize that Jesus, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he died on the cross so that we could be justified, right? Uh, when I first came to faith, the old preachers used to say, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Even though I've sinned, and I still sin, Christ puts me in right standing with God because of his death and resurrection. It doesn't have anything at all to do with what you have done, how you've been raised, how bad you think you've been, how many things you should have done that you haven't done. God puts you in right standing with himself through his son. Then he puts his spirit in you and gives you a new nature so that you begin to live out a righteous life. Well, this, was, this is what is taught in churches like ours, right? Churches that teach the gospel, but it wasn't being taught at all. And so Martin Luther was appalled at some of the abuses that were going on in the church at the time. They were selling what were called indulgences, which meant they were basically selling forgiveness. You paid the, the, the you gave a big donation to the church and the priest would absolve you of your sins. And Martin Luther said, if the priest has the ability to absolve you of sins, why would he require you to pay the church? Why wouldn't he just out of mercy absolve you of sin? So he didn't buy into that. And that launched, really, what we call the Protestant denominations, right? Broadly speaking, anything that is not, any church uh, that is a Christian church that is not Catholic or Orthodox, 
is in this large group of churches called Protestant churches. So all the churches I mentioned earlier, Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Baptists, those are all Protestant churches, broadly speaking. They came around at different times. Presbyterians came from John Calvin. Methodists came from John Wesley out of the Episcopal, or it wasn't called the Episcopal Church. Episcopal Church is the Anglican Church in America, right? The Anglican Church is the Church of England, which split off from the Catholic Church because King Henry VIII wanted a divorce. Isn't that great? And the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. And so he said, fine, then we're going to have our own church. It's the Church of England, and I'm the head of the church. That's how the Anglican Church started, believe it or not. Wow. Right? And so Methodists came along when John Wesley saw basically what Martin Luther saw. He just saw a lot of abuses in the church. But instead of splitting off, what he did is he had these meetings with people in the afternoons he didn't want them to leave the Anglican church, but he had these meetings in the afternoons and these people gradually, their focus was on holiness, right? It was becoming more like Jesus in these meetings. And because Wesley was very organized, they called him a Methodist, right? Because he had a method for everything. It wasn't until Methodism came to the United States that it became a unique denomination. Isn't that interesting, right? So all of these Protestant denominations didn't even exist until Martin Luther came along. But Martin Luther, the reason I started talking about him is because he had to see at this point in time, um, if you came against the church, the church was in charge of the state. And so what would happen is you could be executed. And that's what they were threatening Luther with was execution. And it wasn't friendly either. They would burn people at the stake, right? They would literally tie you to a stake, put wood around you, and light it on fire, and watch you burn alive. That's what the Catholic Church did, right? Now, sadly, some of these other denominations that came along followed suit with that for years and years as well. So it's really bad news. But Luther stood in front of the, the officials of his day and he, he was told that he needed to recant. He needed to go back on what he'd said because he'd written all of these pamphlets and booklets and books against the abuses that he saw in the Catholic Church. And they said, you need to stop it right now. You need to recant. And he said, I can't violate my conscience. You are unwise to violate your conscience. You have a conscience for a reason. Your conscience informs you of what is right and what is wrong. You are unwise to violate your conscience. Now, you are wise to subject your conscience to the word of God so that it can be properly directed because your conscience can be, can be misled, right? But it is unwise to violate your conscience. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He says, it's a small thing if somebody wants to judge me. You want to judge me? Judge me. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. But I don't even judge myself, he says. He says, now, I'm not, not aware of anything against myself. In other words, his, his conscience is not bothering him. He's okay. He's, he says, no, I, I'm not aware that I'm doing anything wrong, that I've said anything wrong to you people, right? I don't, I'm not aware that I violated my conscience. And then he said what I've titled tonight's Bible study, it is the Lord who judges me. Listen, nobody can judge you. Isn't that good? Not only can no one judge you, 
No one's even on the jury. So when somebody wags their finger at you and tells you this and that and the other thing, take their advice if they're giving you good advice and they're giving you wisdom, right? Because sometimes people, they just, they're coming across wrong. But in the end, they're not your judge. As I said, they're not even on the jury. So receive the advice and say, thank you very much. And then go your way and don't violate your conscience, but pray. Right. And if, you know, if it keeps bothering you, you know, why did that person say that? Well, you know, maybe there's some substance to what they're saying. But in the end, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at whether somebody is seeking to help you. Or whether they're seeking to hurt you. It's about that simple, really. See, the kind of judgment that we're talking about here, the kind of judgment that Jesus referred to when he said, have you, have you heard somebody quote this before? Judge not lest you be not judged. That's what Jesus said. Well, he did say that. He said, do not judge and then you won't be judged. But with the same measure you measure, it will be measured back to you. That's just wisdom. Okay. But what Jesus was referring to was fault finding. When you're looking to find fault in someone else, when you're looking to cut them down. Now, when I was a youth minister, I used to deal with this all the time with teenagers and adults do it too, um, where uh, they were cutting each other down or they were making fun of each other. In fact, I even for a while, we would go on trips and I would uh, require them to pay a fine for every time they made fun of somebody. Oh, Felix would be broke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it was only a quarter, but man, my quarter jar was getting full, right? It's like every time you cut somebody down, every time you make fun of somebody, well, it was just an awareness thing, right? Because we don't, I remember when I was a young person, um, I had, I had, there were four of us, right? I had three friends and we hung out and we did everything together. And uh, this was when I very first became a believer in Jesus and started going to church. And we all went to the same church and we always ranked on each other and made fun of each other. And I'll be honest with you. I can remember times that I had spent the whole day with my friends and I'd go home and I was just worn out. I was just exhausted because it was like this ongoing game, right? That this person ranks on you and you rank on them. They make fun of you and you make fun of them. And so it's good natured, but yet at the same time, what's my motive, right? And so with young men in particular, this underlying motive can be, hey, hey, you're trying to get above me. I need to pull you down. But one thing that I used to do in youth groups all the time is show people that when you try to pull somebody down, it actually makes you lower. When you're grabbing somebody and trying to pull them down, what happens? You got to get lower to pull them down. So what we need to do is we need to concern ourselves less with what other people think of us and more with what God thinks of us. See, by saying that no one else can judge you, that's not saying that God doesn't judge you because he does and he will right? Um, the Holy Spirit begins by convicting your conscience, right? The Holy Spirit is just, hey, hey, 
He's got a still, small voice. The Holy Spirit doesn't scream. He says, hey, hey. And see, a lot of times our lives are just so full of noise. We don't know the Spirit is speaking. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into them and we can have fellowship with one another. Now, I like this. I've posted this before. Uh, those of you that are older can remember seeing the painting, very famous painting. You'd see it in churches and all kinds of different places, but it's Jesus. Now, and it's an old school Jesus with long hair and beard and, you know, whatever. And he's standing at a door and it looks like an old Roman door and he's knocking. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that verse. Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But if you pay real close attention to the door, what do you notice? There's no doorknob on the outside. It has to be opened from the inside. Further, if you look at the door jam of the door in that painting, the door jam is on the outside. So the door obviously opens in and it has no handle. Only Jesus can, uh, only you can open the door to invite Jesus to come in. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not powerful enough to kick in the door of your life. But that's not what he does. And that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Lord wants to have fellowship with you, but you got to pay attention. You know, sometimes you got the music playing so loud in your house that you can't hear that knock. Sometimes you're too busy on that video game and you got that headset going on. Yeah, I got you. I killed you. No, no. You know, whatever. Jesus is saying, I'd like to have a little fellowship with you. I'd like to hang out with you. Would you spend some time with me? A little time alone? Trying to kind of find your way to Jesus? Man, that's healthy. Like I said, I'd spend all day with my, my buddies and golly, I would be tired, man. And I, would, I just wouldn't necessarily feel good. You know what I mean? I just kind of felt run down, like you feel like right before you get sick or something. And it's because all we did was just make fun of each other and run each other down and whatever. And it was always good natured. But you know, after a while, it's like enough is enough. We don't need to be doing this. Now, can I you know, give you a confession? When I first came into youth ministry, I carried that practice into youth ministry. And I would make these little comments and it was just good hearted. It was just to be funny and just to be fun. And on rare occasion, I'll still do it. You know, like I griped at you just a second ago, but I, it's just to, you know, cause I know you're strong enough talent. Um, <laughs> but anyway, what I, what I noticed was that you can say stuff to people and you can think that you're being good hearted and it hurts their feelings. I can remember, um, and, uh, you know, we prayed for everybody earlier and we prayed for the Wilson family. They're traveling right now, but I can remember Pastor Craig was just 12 years old. He's in my youth ministry. I, to this day, I remember this. I said something to him that was intended to be funny. There were only a few other kids around, but it was intended to be funny. It wasn't a bad cut down or anything like that. I didn't think it was harmful at all. And I think this was not too long after I had become the youth minister at Freeman Heights. This is the first time that he got upset with me. I'm like, what's wrong? And he was really upset with me over what I said. 
I, I, what's going on, right? He's like your age, literally your age. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, because I, I can remember we were getting in the church van to go somewhere and he was really upset with me over what I said. And I had to start evaluating right then. You know what? Maybe this is not the best way to, you know, conduct yourself with people, making fun of people. Because sometimes, even though you're just trying to be funny, you really are being judgmental. And I'm not going to mention the comment because it would be something that you might go, what? Why was he upset over that? Okay. But I can just tell you that that hurt his feelings. And I still remember it to this day. And I will bet that if Craig were in this room right now and I said, do you remember that time? He would tell you, yeah, he remembered that time. Wow. Such a huge responsibility to work with younger people because you might not even, and you guys need to forgive your parents. You need to forgive your teachers, right? They may say stuff to you and they're not, they may not being, you know, intentional about it at all, or they might say something out of anger or whatever. Man, you got to give them a break because it's, it's hard to work with younger people. It really, really is. It's a huge responsibility, right? So we need to be careful that we're not judging people on any level. And that means that we're not fault finding, right? But in the passage of scripture that we often go to, the judge not lest you be not judged passage of scripture, does anybody know where that is? I know where it is. I'm just asking whether you know where it is. All right, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But I'm going to read the whole passage to you because I want you to get this. Because this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be making decisions about right and wrong. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't be willing to give advice to people and point out the way, right? It means that you don't seek to be their judge. You don't seek to find fault in them. Listen to what he said. This is Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 1, and I think I'm going to go down to verse 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know what you find? That's really true. By and large, if you are nice to people, not always, not 100%, but I'd say 90% of the time or more, if you're nice to people, what happens? Pretty much. Now, people can be so hurt, they can be so into themselves and so angry and whatever that they just ignore you and, and whatnot. So I'm not saying this is 100%, but this is, this is the law of reciprocity, right? That means what you plant is what you pick, right? So if I plant a rosebud, then I'm going to grow a rosebush. If I plant a watermelon seed, there's a watermelon vine going to come up and I'm going to pick watermelons. But I can't, th I can't imagine that if I plant uh, seeds for weeds, that I'm going to have grapes. It just doesn't work that way. Okay? Reciprocity. You reap what you sow. You pick what you plant. So what you and I need to be doing constantly is planting good in people. Planting kindness, love, courtesy, 
all those sorts of things, right? Because people are going to do what you do, right? If you push somebody, what are they going to want to do? Push you right back. If you hit somebody, what are they going to want to do? Hit you right back. It's just the way it works. So be kind. What you want to do is give what you want to get. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's a little further down. That's in verse 12. It's called the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Do you want somebody to hit you in the face? No. no. Then you don't do that. Do you want somebody to make fun of you? No. No, you don't. Right? Show them the way you want them to treat you. Don't treat them the way they are treating you. That's natural. That's judgment. If I treat somebody the way they are treating me, that's the law. That's Old Testament, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, break for break, burn for burn. That's, that's strict, pure justice. You want to get what you deserve? Then you get back exactly what you've given out. And that's what Jesus is saying here. With the judgment you pronounce, it will be judged uh, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then walk, walk away? Uh-uh. What does it say? then you will be able to see clearly so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying your brother doesn't have a speck in his eye. He's saying work on yourself first because you, your log is this judgment problem you've got, this fault find. Oh, nice. You've got a speck in your eye. That's great. You're, there's a smudge on your glasses, Christy. I don't see a smudge from here. I'm wearing, I'm wearing glasses that are good for close distance. And then as we go further back, you guys are sort of in focus. It's kind of like, you know, one of those soft focuses. Like, you know, if you have wrinkles, I can't see them. If you have blemishes, I can't see them. It's just, you're all just, you look good. You look all smooth and nice and what? That's with these glasses right here. And if I do this, oh, you look like a Monet painting. Y'all are just blurry, right? So this is good. So I was just saying that, okay? This is the, this is the idea behind it, okay? Oh, you got a pimple on your nose. Nice. Why would you say that, right? Why would you walk up to somebody and say, you're fat, right? Okay, or... Let's say I'm, wor I'm working out at the gym, okay? I'm working out at the gym, and I, I see some dude at a machine. And I'm like, dude, that's not a lot of weight. You're really weak. <laughs> or, man, dude, you're, like, really skinny. Why would I do that? Well, I wouldn't do that. But you understand, that's what we're talking about. But how about this? What if I see, and I have seen this, and... Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sensitive to just walking up to some stranger and tell them what to do. But if I, if I see somebody at a machine and they don't know what they're doing, 
then I could, I could approach it one of two ways. I could say, hey, dummy, don't do that. Okay. You don't know what you're doing. Just, you know, why don't you just quit the gym? Or I could go up and say, hey, you want me to show you how to do that? If you do it this way, then it's going to help you. The way you're doing it is not. I'll give you an example. There's a machine there that a lot of people use. It's for crunches, right? You sit in the seat kind of like this and you hook your feet under these, the, this bar, this, this padded bar, right? And you reach behind you and there are handles right here. And there's a, a headrest right here. You're supposed to hold your body up tight against the back and it folds in the middle and you do this, okay? So you select weight right here and it makes it harder and harder to do this. You know what I see people doing all the time, right? Mm -hmm. They go like this. <laughs> and I just want to say, you know, I need to help you learn how to do this. Because, I... you know, you don't want to just tell people what to do because then you seem bossy and you're not being helpful. I'm using this as an example because this is what Jesus is talking about. Are you really concerned that somebody, if somebody's doing this, oh man, that, I think there's a splinter in my eye. Hey, Mary, is there a splinter in my eye? And she comes up and she looks. Pastor Darrell, there is a splinter in your eye. Here, come here. Make us some tweezers and get the splinter out of your eye. But if Miss Mary had a giant log sticking out of her head, <laughs> right? And just comes blasting in and bashes me in the face with this look. <laughs> Believe it or not, with this, this example that Jesus has given is worn so smooth on us, but I think that this would have been really funny to people when they first heard it. Because if you just think about it, it's, it's crazy. It's super hyperbole. You know, you got a big log sticking out of your head. I've done this in, in youth work before. I, I've gotten pool noodles and I got them set up so that it would like mount to your head. So you have a giant pool noodle sticking out of your head, right? You can turn that every which way and whatnot. Um, the idea is, am I putting myself in a position so I can genuinely help other people, right? And so that's what I'm saying. Let's go full circle back around to the LGBT issue because this is, you know, supposed to be LGBT month or whatever. Um, I should be in the kind of relationship with anybody. Okay, this person identifies as, you know, same-sex attracted or they're full-on in a relationship, same-sex relationship, uh, or this person is, thinks that they may want to transition and all these other sort of things. I can say, well, that's, that's just wrong. You're going to hell. That's not helping anybody. Do you really think that somebody is going to change because you told them they're going to hell? That's not going to help anybody. The scripture says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? So I need to enter into the kind of relationship with them where we can share and have an interchange and where I can open up and where I can show a better way. But see, that's the getting the log out of my eye thing. I need to be pursuing the better way. That, by the way, is why our church is called Life Well, living life well, because I want us to be a model of that. I wanna be a model of that for you. I want you to see, no, 
the reason God says one man, one woman life is because that's the way he designed us. And in the end, it's going to be a better way of living life. But full circle around, I'm not your judge. But the judge is standing at the door. He wants to have a relationship with you now. But folks, we're not showing a whole lot of concern for people if we don't make them aware of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And the Savior is coming back to judge the world. So, what does that mean for you and I? If we are in Christ, we're not going to be judged for things that we have done wrong because we've been forgiven. When Christ returns, what we're going to be given is the ability to receive a reward for the things we've done right, right? What does the scripture say? 2 Corinthians 5.10, so the next Corinthian letter, letter over. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So what is judgment for the believer? We can look forward to judgment as a time and a place where everything will be revealed, can't hide anything. And it is a time when believers in Jesus will be rewarded for the good things we've done on earth for Christ's sake. I've got one more minute. I'm going to read this brief devotional by a fellow named N.T. Wright, and then we'll be done for the evening. Um, N.T. Wright says, the picture of Jesus as the coming judge is the central feature of another absolutely vital and non-negotiable Christian belief, that there will indeed be a judgment in which the Creator, God, will set the world right once and for all. The word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Amen? You just want to be on the right side of that judgment, right? Jesus said, if you heed his word, and you believe the one who sent him, then you will have eternal life and you will not come into judgment because you have passed from death to life. That's what he said in John 5, 24, right? So you will be judged, but you want to have Jesus in your life now so that the judge will also be your defense attorney and your advocate. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you.